1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for
0: 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd Um, on mom. (laughs) No, you can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long lasting fragrances and are safe for color treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Can we look at that
1: video?
3: Take like tactics? Yeah. yeah.
1: This is Lisa Silberstein, an experienced developer at the Oakland Museum of California, just down the street from me. She's showing me around their current exhibition called Queer California, Untold
3: Stories. This is a really important film by Barbara Hammer. It's her and her friends frolicking nude in nature. That's the first part of the video, and the second part is her and her lover having sex. And she called it didactics because sort of like uh, didactics to like show people what it was to be a lesbian. There are
1: more films and zines and costumes and posters on display, as well as the original Pride Flag designed by Gilbert Baker and a photography project chronicling queer separatist communes out in the countryside. Fantasies of utopia that are not some hubristic quest to mold the world, these dreams of utopia are from necessity by groups of people who wanted to claim some autonomy when the world wouldn't grant it to them.
3: There's an amazing spread in here of a self, of photographs of a self-defense class where everyone's nude. Ha.
1: But one of my favorite things in this exhibit is a board game. It's called the Rainbow Game, spelled with a G-A-Y gay, and it was originally designed in 1992. For this exhibit, two artists, Ginger Brooks Takahashi and Nika Ross, took this board game and blew it up and printed it on a rug so you can walk through it like you're a pawn. And it takes you on a gay journey.
3: Well, you go out of the closet, you go by Stonewall, you get arrested, you are discharged, looks like you uh, face some harassment in the streets, there's the AIDS quilt. There looks like a pride parade, there's Fire Island, and there's a disco.
1: (laughs) You follow a rainbow trail through this board. That's kind of like the game of life. As you progress, you are growing, finding more spaces in the world for yourself, learning about gay history, and aiming towards a grand end, which is...
3: And then at the very end, you come to... A gay utopia out in nature.
1: (laughs) The rainbow path leads up to a mountain, rising above a forest of
3: trees and a
1: pristine lake, and at the mountain's peak stands a person planting a
3: massive rainbow flag. This is how you win this game. Is by? Is by putting your flag in nature. And it is very colonial. That is
1: totally colonial. Exactly. If the flag weren't rainbow. Yeah, right? In the exhibit, Lisa also showed me artifacts of a back-to-the-land movement by a group of men called the Gay Liberation Front. They had planned to take over a small town in California named Alpine, whose population was majority Washoe Native Americans, and they were going to rename it Stonewall Nation. They didn't ever make this gay utopia. In fact, it seems like it was a bit of a publicity stunt from the beginning. But still, it's just like, Is this what it comes down to when you try to build utopia? Looking back at the utopias of this season, they have all centered around the visions of privileged, hubristic men whose utopias were more or less ego trip experiments wielding and weaponizing land. There must be another way of building utopia. Practically and ethically, there must be for the people who actually need utopia as spaces of refuge, as subversive spaces. And so the question is, how do you make a radically new world without being doomed to reenact the mistakes of history over and over again? This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. This first season is called Utopian. Utopian. It's about the perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman. Perhaps the problem is the concept of utopia itself, or perhaps the problem is the people who attempt it. Perhaps the problem is men, after all. In the grand finale of the Rainbow Game, while the massive flag was being raised over the mountain, there was a separate utopia for women. An island where all the women were just chilling.
3: The Isle of Lesbos with a women's circle and they're worshipping a statue or they're just dancing around a statue and um, someone's meditating by a pond in the forest.
1: Even in this board game, The women on the Isle of Lesbos look like they are living in an actual serene utopia. Like they've got it figured out, and life is one long shavasana when women are finally left to their own devices. In 1915, almost exactly 400 years after Thomas More's original utopia, came another world that imagined what women could build when left to their own devices. It's called Her Land, and its visionary was the famous feminist author, Charlotte Perkins Gilman.
0: Her Land is this sort of fanciful story in which three male explorers from the United States show up uh, in Latin America, and um, there's a society of all women who have somehow learned to reproduce, or they've spontaneously become able to reproduce without men, um, and have developed this kind of perfect living system.
1: Catherine Fusco is an associate professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno. Basically, the plot is that these men get shown around and gradually learn more about Herland's history and structure. And what they find is that Herland is perfect.
4: We'd better import some of these ladies and set them to parking the United States, I suggested. Mighty nice place they've got here. This is the very impressed male narrator of Herland. We visit this utopia through him. We rested a few minutes by one of the fountains, tested the fruit that looked ripe, and went on, impressed for all our gay bravado by the sense of quiet potency which lay about us. Here was evident a people highly skilled, efficient, caring for their country as a florist cares for his costliest orchids. Under the soft, brilliant blue of that clear sky, in the pleasant shade of those endless rows of trees, we walked unharmed, the placid silence broken only by the birds. When the three men first encounter a group of Herlanders, the women
1: are swinging effortlessly through the trees and running swiftly and silently like gazelles. They all have short hair and limber, strong bodies.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is this kind of, like, Amazonian fantasy society. Um, the women are described as being very strong and being fast runners and archers and things like that.
1: The narrator even describes the Herlanders as superwomen, who plow fields and raise children and are quick-witted. If this isolated land full of superwomen sounds like Wonder Woman's origin story, it's because it literally is. William Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman was directly inspired by Herland. Because Herlanders can do anything.
0: If what you're really great at is teaching in this society, then you get to be a teacher. If what you're really great at is governing, then you get to be a governor. And keep in mind,
1: Herland was written in 1915. Like, Charlotte Perkins Gilman wasn't able to vote. But she's self-publishing this story to show that women possess many talents. Even, believe it or not, outside of the domestic sphere. She firmly believes that society would be much, much more peaceful and generally more utopian if women were free to leave the home and participate in economic, political, and public life. Actually, she believed that liberated women would speed up the evolution of the human race. Throughout almost the whole story, the male visitors are looking around them in awe of all that Herland has
0: built. And they are just like, are you sure there's not one man here? What about a boy? Not one? What? And the men are kind of following the women around, asking them questions about how things work um, and learning, you know, through the process how bad and backwards things are in the United States. And the men agree that in Herland, everything is better. The first
1: village they encounter is seamlessly built into a sloping hill. The houses are pink. The landscaping is flawless. The roads winding pleasantly. Even the fashion is better.
4: We had become well used to the clothes. They were quite as comfortable as our own, in some ways more so, and undeniably better looking. As to pockets... They left nothing to be desired. These women had pockets in surprising number and variety. They were in all their garments. Amongst the residents of her
1: land there's absolute peace. There's no violence, no war. In fact, there's no interpersonal conflict at all. Because apparently, without men, there's no jealousy and there's no sexual desire whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, it, it's very interesting because it's like a very queer utopia written by maybe the straightest person in the world. Well, it's it's very fascinating. I mean, she she
0: she actually may have had a kind of romantic relationship with a woman friend, Gilman, that is. But huh. there is this weird sense in which, like, there is no eroticism in this world. Um, yeah. And so
1: this utopia is admittedly kind of boring. It's a heaven where nothing ever happens. The male visitors remark on this and complain that there's no excitement here, no fire, no passion or clashing. And they very condescendingly note that the art of her land is mediocre and toothless.
0: And the women are described as being like bees in a hive. And so um, those kind of insects are eusocial, right? They don't have individual desires. They work on behalf of the group. And that's kind of a fantasy for Gilman, that like you wouldn't have to have your own kind of personal desires. Um, You could just know what the greater good is and work for that. And you, you can see how that might be kind of a relief in some ways. And the greater good in this novel is children, whether
1: they are your own or not. The whole community is involved in raising girls. And in her land, the women who do want to have kids just reproduce, like amoebas. They basically print out more women who look and think and act
0: like them. You can imagine it's almost like a little cookie-cutter line where just, you know, the ideal woman cookie-cutter would reproduce, 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 like a kind of factory assembly line on into infinity, Um, and the kind of lower types, um, which, you know, so-called, would get bred out. Does that sound a little eugenic? Oh, you bet it is. It's very much also a kind of white racialist fantasy where even though these women, I think, are supposed to be in Latin America, um, they're white women and they've been cut off from other neighboring countries um, by geographic features. And so these are women who reproduce without men, so there's no danger of introducing... um, you know, non-white genetic material into the mix.
1: Gilman is not the only prominent feminist of her time interested in eugenics, by
0: the way. Margaret Sanger
1: actually supported eugenics as a way to advocate for birth control, but that is a much more complicated and interesting history that we are not going to get into here. The point is, Herland is a successful utopia for a very specific, very narrow woman. She is white. She has a uterus. She would only be attracted to men, but there are no men, so she's not attracted to anyone. She's strong, able-bodied, and of a leisure class. Because this is a central premise and central failure of utopian logic. That everyone will get along best if everyone is exactly the same.
0: Hers is a fantasy of no difference, right? Like, part of having a, a utopian society means not there not being a lot of difference amongst individuals,
1: We've heard this before in other utopias, in Oneida's eugenics program, in Germania's Aryan capital, in the racial exclusion of Levittown. Even though Herland is a response to real marginalization, Gilman is a utopian visionary who is also wielding her privilege to build a world only for people who are exactly like her. In this fictitious world of Herland, where humans reproduce parthenogenically, and have all the sexual vitality of an Ikea cafeteria, success relies on
4: utmost conformity. To them, the country was a unit. It was theirs. They themselves were a unit, a conscious group. They thought in terms of the community. As such, their time sense was not limited to the hopes and ambitions of an individual life. Therefore, they habitually considered and carried out plans for improvement which might cover centuries. Charlotte Perkins Gilman passed away in
1: 1935. And then a few decades after that, Herland hit peak popularity. Because Herland was originally published as a series of articles in 1915, but it wasn't actually published in book form until 1979. And the timing was perfect. Because the 1970s were the decade of the the back-to-the-land movement. The
3: world was crazy at that time.
1: Lisa Silberstein at the Oakland Museum again, talking about how the 60s ended. You have
3: protesting going on. They're being tear-gassed. You have assassinations, MLK, Kennedy. And I think this is a response to that. I think it's a response to, like, this is crazy, and we need to get back to, like, essentialism of, like, find some solid ground to stand on literally get with our people and, like, imagine a better world because this one is not working. And so huge numbers of people
1: decided to start over from scratch, away from public life, into their own utopias. And some, by necessity, sought out real-life versions of her land. Jill Johnson, a radical cultural critic and longtime Village Voice writer, argued that for women to survive— They needed to break entirely free from male-dominated institutions like capitalism to be liberated. But of course, in a real-life Herland, women can't magically asexually make little mini-me's. And there is sex and passion. And there is conflict. That's after the break.
2: There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com.
5: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com.
6: Atlassian. My name is Barbara Liu. It's spelled L-I-E-U. It's in lieu of my old name or in lieu of being straight. And it is a name that I took with my partner when we weren't allowed to get married. And so we were um, the Lus. Barbara
1: Liu came out when she was 30. In the late 1970s, she moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where she met her partner. And being a lesbian was very different back then.
6: Lesbians who were living in the greater community and in the world at large could lose everything. They could lose their children. They could lose their home. They could lose their job if they came out.
1: And then Barbara heard about a place that was only for women, a lesbian community called Pagoda in Florida, Barbara and her partner decided to move there in 1978 and stayed there for 17 years. It was a safe space where they could access some of the securities straight people took for granted. But it wasn't an idyllic utopia. Because if you're not following the whims of one charismatic leader, or if you don't live in a fictional land where everyone simply wants exactly all the same things, you have to engage with politics. Pagoda wanted to make all of their decisions by consensus through really, really, Long meetings on Sunday nights,
6: these meetings would go on for, like eight hours because consensus is not easy. And um women who had jobs and had to go to work Monday morning would say, "This is not fair to us. This is not right that you go on, and I have to go. I have to have supper. I have to go to bed."
1: Some of the women worked in the community theater. They all ran together. There were paid jobs, but most of the work was done on a volunteer basis. Some had jobs in town. But there wasn't much money to be made.
6: We were privileged in that we didn't need much money because we didn't go out of out into the world much. We each paid basically like $30 a month mortgage. And so there's ways around not having money. Now, I grant you, we were all, most of us were white middle class women. There's no question about that. We were definitely not integrated. And um, we had some working class women and we had some poverty class women, but uh, we were mostly uh, middle class. That's true. So,
1: yeah, it was pretty homogenous. In the 90s, Barbara decided to split off with a group of friends and look for another space, just a place to settle down and grow old, where they hoped they could build a nursing home for lesbians. In 1997, they bought land in the woods of rural Alabama, and they called their 108 acres Alpine Village. And it's where Barbara still lives. And to this day, it is separatist. Men may visit, but they're not allowed to drive up a U-Haul and move in. And there are a bunch of other rules, too, as Barbara told producer Megan Kinane.
6: No junk cars, no clear-cutting of the lots. We didn't want people to come in and sell the trees off the lot and leave a barren lot. Things like that. Fire protection, animal issues, you know, your dog can't run wild, things like that. Yeah, really mundane stuff. Oh, extremely mundane stuff. Because living together is extremely mundane. Who's going to clean the toilets this week? Who's going to wash the sheets? You enter utopia with all these grand
1: ideas, but very quickly it can slide down Maslow's hierarchy of needs until basic problems with food or money or relationships take up everyone's attention. Utopia is more than just creating new ideas. It's surviving and sustaining day-to-day life. The population of Alapine Village is currently 14 women. Barbara would like it to be more. She says there's a beautiful house for sale if you know anyone. But younger lesbians aren't coming. Perhaps because Alapine is too remote. Perhaps because there aren't a lot of job prospects there. Perhaps because it's less dangerous to live publicly as a queer person now. And perhaps because the nature of queerness itself has changed. Because Alapine's definition of lesbianism is somewhat narrow and traditional and does not include, say, trans women or women who identify as bi or pansexual or don't want to label themselves at all.
6: We are certainly not something that young lesbians desire and whether young lesbians even identify as lesbians is a whole nother question and blessed be i mean i'm i'm so happy for the world to be different um but it does not help us in terms of the survival of the community
1: barbara is 74 years old she's tired and a little heartbroken when her best friend suffered from a stroke Alpine wasn't equipped to take care of her she had to go back to her family to die in peace. It's painful. But Alpine does provide an amazing service to the women who live there. And Barbara has lived there for years. Alpine Village is in no way a failure, it just contains some within it. Like that nursing home Barbara wanted to build, it just didn't pan out.
6: It's the disappointment of my life. Really? Oh, yeah. We don't have our nursing home. We have all this land, and we don't have have the nursing home. I mean, every issue you can think of came up. Uh, We met for quite a few years, and we could not work it out. We couldn't agree. We couldn't even agree to keep meeting. Community is not easy.
1: Community is not easy. But it is necessary And it doesn't have to be in some isolated plot of land out in the country.
7: Separatism came from me making a promise. This is Shanta Smith-Cruz. She goes by Sean. A promise to myself and a promise to every man that tried to grab me on Church Avenue when I was 12 and 14 and 16 that I wasn't their empress I wasn't interested in cohabitating or coexisting with them. Sean grew up in Brooklyn. Now she lives in
1: Connecticut with her wife and young daughter. She once thought she wanted to live in a separatist lesbian utopia. But she was disillusioned to discover how homogenous and alienating these spaces can be for women of color.
7: I've always been a racially aware person, but I didn't expect that within lesbian communities, which I thought was a utopia,
0: <laughs>
7: which I thought was a utopia, to have issues with race. Separatism can be a privilege.
1: Only so many women can just pick up and leave their homes for a lesbian utopia. When we talked, Sean quoted Juana Maria Paz, author of The La Luz Journal, which is about joining a lesbian separatist movement as a woman of color. Paz wrote in 1980, Here I am pen in hand, lying on the mat of my loft in paradise. I feel that I do not belong here. Sean still identifies as a separatist, but instead of putting her flag on a plot of land, she organizes in New York City. She's been making community spaces since she was 16. Sean created Sister Outsider, an organization for and by self-supporting young women in Brooklyn. She built and maintains an affordable housing listserv for queer people of color, she was a co-producer of Rivers of Honey, a queer performance space and cabaret, and she writes oral history projects and zines and academic papers. Sean does a lot. And these spaces she's carving out aren't utopian, per se. They're not carefree. There are a lot of hard conversations happening behind closed doors.
7: Conceptualizing a utopia is definitely not what separatist spaces are intended to function as. Um... I think that they're meant to be spaces that are tumultuous and painful because I almost feel like there's this assumption by people on the outside of a separatist space that like once they're not there, everybody's like partying and dancing. And although partying and dancing could hopefully happen if it's a really fun space, what's also happening is the ability to deal with the shit that you can't deal with because you have to deal with everyone else's stuff on the outside. But this is what the labor looks like.
1: This is the life of a separatist in society, where utopia, the perfect place, free from conflict, does not exist. And that's okay. The philosopher and social theorist Michel Foucault wrote that utopias are fundamentally unreal spaces. And in 1967, he proposed a real-world alternative, the heterotopia, It doesn't mean a space for straight people, not at all. Hetero as in not homogenous. These spaces, as Foucault describes them, are worlds within our world that allow differences to thrive, whether that difference is in points of view or sexualities or bodies or abilities or anything. Heterotopias are anywhere that feels separate from the outside or the real world, for better or for worse. Maybe it's summer camp, Maybe it's boarding school or a university campus, hospitals, prisons, retirement homes, performance spaces and cabarets and nightclubs and sailing ships. These are all places that exist in the world and yet feel elsewhere.
7: Like the places Sean makes and visits. So I think that Foucault's heterotopias is spot on with the purpose of separatism. And and maybe separatism isn't a utopia. Um because it's not intended to be perfect. It's intended to be
1: real. Sean's separatism is about maintaining communities that are vulnerable by providing real spaces with rooms to just be fully joyful and messy. And we haven't even talked about what Sean does for work yet. For her bread and butter, Sean is a librarian. She's the head of reference at the Graduate Center Library at CUNY and an archivist for the Lesbian Herstory Archives which is the largest collection of history by and for lesbian women. It's housed in a full brownstone in Brooklyn. You know, not the Huntington Library, but pretty big, especially because it is dedicated to stories that have been excluded from the narrow narrative of the history of the United States.
7: The American story is a failed history, and it's because the, you know, the, the, the colonizers that came to this country didn't anticipate for me to be sitting in this house, um, this body, my life, right, to be the life that they were uh, fighting for when they crossed the waters, right? Um, And so they failed. And so my prosperity is their failure. So in some ways, um, what the archive does for me is it helps to balance the history that we have been trained to understand. It provides matter for historians to pull from.
1: And so gathering community means building heterotopias for the present while studying the past. In Sean's case, this involves collecting the stories of queer women of color throughout history, as well as listening closely to her own maternal ancestors. And gathering community also involves imagining a way for a future. Because I warned you, Sean does a lot.
7: I also write fiction, and I have an MFA, so I, um, when there's spare time, I'm uh, writing short stories, <laughs>
1: Not necessarily sci-fi, but just stories with protagonists that are like Sean.
7: I think when you put a Black woman at the center of a story, it's already an alternate reality. And then that will create a world in and of itself. Yeah, I would say mine utopia is fiction. So maybe this is where we land.
1: My utopia exists only in fiction. I mean, we've said it every episode. Utopia isn't real. Fiction is where the word utopia comes from. Maybe it is also the place we can revise it. Dismantle the hubristic, imperialist ideal of what the perfect place is. And listen, I am but a humble podcaster. I know nothing definitively. But I think utopia is still important to dream about as an exercise, definitely. There's some merit to running towards an unattainable horizon— knowing that a perfect happiness never just lasts, but to seek it out anyway. Christina Linden, the curator of Queer California, the exhibit at the Oakland Museum, told us she built the exhibit through the lens of Jose Esteban Munoz's work, Cruising Utopia, which positions utopia and queerness as a process. A process of examining the past in order to imagine the future. Utopia... Not as a concrete destination, but as a direction. A constant imagining and reimagining. Because here's the thing about failure and success. They're not really final. Nothing just stays one way forever. One thing leads to something else. Most utopian places exist in a gray area punctuated by pitfalls and revivals. In the words of Jack Halberstam author of The Queer Art of Failure. To live is to fail, to bungle, to disappoint, and ultimately to die. Rather than searching for ways around death and disappointment, the queer art of failure involves the acceptance of the finite. Rather than resisting endings and limits, let us instead revel in and cleave to all of our inevitable, fantastic failures. And in understanding that, and not resisting endings and limits, perhaps we can seek to enjoy the glimpses of utopia where we can catch them, knowing that these moments, like everything, must end. And that maybe, even in their endings, they can dangle that carrot of utopia a little farther ahead, where more people can see it, and walk in that direction.
6: I did the best I could. I will never say I wish I'd done more.
1: This is Barbara Lou again from Alpine Village.
6: I did 110%. I gave everything I could. And so it's for someone else to do it now. And I would not say I'm cynical about someone else doing it. Please try. Nice try. Everybody's trying.
1: Thanks to the Oakland Museum of California and to Christina Linden, curator of Queer California, and Nika Ross, one of the artists who adapted the rainbow game for the exhibit, for taking the time to speak with us about the amazing piece. And shout out to Davy Davis, who first told me about heterotopias. And thanks to Sean Ramosverm for playing the narrator in her land. This episode was informed by the research and creative work of so many exceptional people. We couldn't quote everyone here, so we put together a further reading list on our website please check it out. Visit curb.com slash nice dash try or find the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for coming along on this little journey with me. Honestly, we could go on and on and on about this forever. There's so much to say about utopias and the world's people try to build for themselves. So if you live in New York City, this conversation actually doesn't have to be over. The evening of August 6th, I'll be talking about utopian experiments at the 92nd Street Y with a very special guest. Like, I will be fanning out hard. Tickets and more information are at 92y.org slash Curbed. For their invaluable help throughout the season, special thanks to Curb General Manager Jill Dennert, Curbed Lead Designer Alyssa Nasser, Samantha Mason in Legal, and Zach Kahn, Senior Manager in Podcast Marketing. Nice Try's producer is the great Megan Kinane. Our associate producer is Diana Buds. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Gautam Shrikashen is our engineer. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and utopias do not exist.
0: Support for this show comes from HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. High-quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle.